Good afternoon. I'm sure that Robert's opening words were meant to inspire great confidence in you that you are in good hands this morning. And so, um, for those of you who are parents with more than you know two, three children, I think you can identify with me. With your first one, when you cradle your first one out of the hospital, you gently place them. You drive 20 miles per hour slowly back home. By the time you're up to three, you just sort of toss the child in and you speed home. It's uh, Robert will know in the days to come or in the years to come. But uh, yeah, my family has evolved. We've grown and we're thankful for that. Uh, we have a baby girl. And uh, what was great when we brought her home was not even our baby girl. Our second son, Jordan, is a riot. He is um, at that stage. And again, I think parents can identify with this, but he can do no wrong. And he makes you want to have more children. And right when they cross that threshold, then you're like, hmm, I think we're done. But uh, for now, he's at that point where he's just so endearing. And so the first two days we were home on his own. How bizarre is this? He finds a picture frame of when, he's, when he was an infant. And he walks around with it all day, symbolizing the death of an error. And uh, he keeps saying to everyone, this is baby Jordan. And so, you know, it's, that's my son and my daughter. Everyone said she would have me wrapped around her finger and um, they were 100% right. And so, um, and by God's grace, we hope to adopt next year. And so um, we're thankful that God has grown our family and we hope that our kids will be a blessing to the world. But um, let's go to God in prayer and then let's consider today's message. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we love you because you have loved us first. And God, we thank you for the richness of the gospel. Uh, to be sure, today we are considering this contention that Christians are responsible for so much injustice. The church has done so many terrible things. But most of all, we are again considering the gospel. How the gospel uniquely, beautifully, intellectually addresses this contention. But God, we pray even more than wit, more than knowledge, we pray that you would give us even an ounce of grace, an ounce of humility, as we recognize that an ounce of humility, an ounce of grace, often goes much further than knowledge itself. And so I pray that you would equip us to be people who defend the truth, who proclaim the truth, who are not afraid to speak the truth, but that we would do so in a way that is consistent with the beauty of the truth itself. And so give us much grace as we desire to be a people that engage the world, that do not become a subculture, but really respectfully consider these questions, accusations, contentions. Give us, again, much grace as we do so. Amen. So let me uh, begin by framing the question, or you might say the contention, because today we're going to be addressing actually a subcategory of that. The main contention, or the question is, Why are Christians responsible for so much injustice in this world? Or basically, more simply, why are Christians so bad? And because it's such a wide question and we have a limited amount of time, I'm going to just focus on one aspect of that question, the more existential, personal part. And it usually goes along these lines. Why do Christians do bad things? Or why are Christians hypocrites? They say one thing, they do another. Why are Christians paradigms of moral failure? Uh, you know on Washington Post, there's every now and then an article about a um, celebrity pastor that has fallen from grace. And so this is the question that's often asked by seekers and skeptics. They basically say Christians are just distasteful as people. They say one thing, they do another. There's nothing attractive about them. 
And that's the question I want to focus on today, not the broader question. And the reason for this is many of the questions that we have already addressed during this series are a little bit more theoretical, a little bit more intellectual, like how do you know there's only one God? How do you know that the Bible is true? But in my limited experience, but I think there's a lot of truth to this, often it's the personal problems that really hinder people from coming to faith. There's this book entitled, Why I Became an Atheist. And it's written by a former evangelical pastor. And this book on the surface looks like a very intellectual, philosophical book. All these arguments why Christianity must not be true. But what's fascinating about this book is that it begins uh, by talking about his own testimony. He was a pastor. He fell from grace by uh, engaging in an inappropriate relationship. And he talks vividly about how his church treated him like an outcast. He was ostracized. He basically was treated like a prodigal. People were told not to go near him. And throughout his book, it's amazing how much that experience of lack of grace, that encounter with Christians who, on the one hand, claimed to know God's love, forgiveness, and mercy, yet they were merciless with him. They they despised him. They rejected him. And it was that experience that really became such an obstacle to his own faith. And many of you in this room can probably attest to that in in some shape or form. Maybe it's positive. Maybe some of you can say, the reason why I am a Christian is because I've had good examples. But for many in our society who bring up this objection, it's a deeply personal one. And I want to reiterate this because often when we do a series like this, we might give the appearance that, okay, we're going to engage in some sort of intellectual, informational exchange. While that's true to some extent, what's important to keep in mind is that we're dealing with people. We're not dealing with robots. And instead of, like, the goal is not to win the argument, not to win the debate, it's not a battle of brains, not a battle of egos, but it's about building bridges, building bridges with people who have these questions, who have these concerns. And so three quick considerations I want to explore today with you are, one, what's the legitimacy behind this uh, contention? How is it actually 100% right in one sense that Christians ought to live good lives? They ought to be commendable. They ought to be admirable. What is completely right about it? So that's number one. Number two, what is a mistaken assumption in this position? What's wrong with like a key assumption uh, with this accusation that Christians are not commendable? They're not good. They're not great people. And then finally, how does the gospel uniquely address the concern under the concern. Again, how does the gospel uniquely address the concern under the concern? So we'll go through those three points very quickly. Let's look at um, our text for a moment. Number one, what is completely correct about this contention that Christians, they ought to live great lives. They ought to be commendable. They ought to be admirable. Why is that 100% correct? Let's look at the text for a moment. In verse 5 and verse 8, there is a key juxtaposition that is central to understanding the Christian life correctly. Again, there's a juxtaposition you need to observe carefully. In verse 5, Paul, the apostle, he writes, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. If you can underline, not because of works done by us in righteousness. But then in verse 8, he immediately says, the saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, you and I, may be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. Do you see this juxtaposition of works? Because Paul is bringing out this important point that in one sense, works don't matter. In another sense, works matter very much. And so let's sort of tease that out. First of all, Paul is addressing the question of religion. 
And we are all religious. We are all religious. And you have friends who may not seem religious, but they're incredibly religious. Have you ever invited uh, maybe a non-Christian friend to church? And I have, and many of my non-Christian friends have usually responded in this sort of way. Okay, I'll come, but I've got to get my act together. And I'm just going to just fix up some things in my life, and then I'll come at that time. What's the assumption behind that statement or that belief? It's the assumption that God relates to us on the basis of our moral performance, our works, how well we have obeyed the law. And that is the default nature of every single person. Um, At RTSDC, this is the way I usually communicate this to uh, my RTS students. I usually say, you see, religion is a lot like that Santa Claus song that we all like used to sing. I I can't wait to teach it to my kids. But it basically goes like this. You all know how it goes, right? It begins with a threat. You better watch out. Okay? And then it continues by saying, you better not cry. You better be good. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. As a five-year-old, I, my initial response is, who is the Santa? You know, it was just like mind-boggling to me. And then it goes on to say, he knows when you've been naughty. He knows when you've been nice. And you're thinking, my goodness, he's omniscient. And he is omnipotent. He's able to be everywhere and a- anywhere. And, you know, you think about it. Because the reason why we, um, that song is very helpful is because we often think of God in those terms. You better watch out. You better not be bad. You better be good because God is coming and his wrath is coming. And so we want to get our act together. Paul says the gospel says otherwise. Paul says the gospel says you and I are not saved on the basis of our works. We are saved on the basis of God's mercy offered to us in Jesus Christ. That is the beauty of the gospel. And if any of you are visiting here for the first time, or this is one of your first few times, I want to suggest this to you. Have you ever heard this good news that there is hope for us because of what Jesus has done? And in this sense, good works do not matter at all. Rather, it is faith in Jesus Christ. And we need to always keep in mind this distinction that we are saved, God loves us, he is for us, not because of our works, but because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. So that is true, but, see, and this is the key that many, I think, Christians miss, we're not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works. That is, one of the ways that we know that we are saved is if our lives are full of good works. In that sense, good works matter very, very much. And so to the skeptic who says, you know, Christians, you can't stand Christians. You know, they say one thing, um, they live another way, their lives are not commendable. Your response should honestly be this. Your response should not be uh, defensive. Your response should not be negative. Your response should be, you know what? I know you say you don't believe the Bible, but you're saying exactly what the Bible is saying. You're absolutely right. Because the Bible itself says that Christians should live lives that are full of good works because good works demonstrate that we have been saved by mercy and grace. And so when you say that, what is amazing is all of a sudden you disarm the skeptic because they're expecting you to get defensive But instead, you say, you're absolutely right. Our lives should abound with good works. See, that's, I think, a starting point, a starting point for dialogue. Now, before we move on to verse 2, just one quick observation. Look with me at verse 8. I love this verse because it's so pregnant with meaning. It's somewhat redundant, but it's pregnant with meaning. Paul says at the end, those who have believed in God, look at the language he uses here. It's great. He says, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. A good translation would have also read, 
that Christians would be purposeful in the way that they live. And I'll suggest this to you. I know that many of my non-Christian friends say something along these lines, um, illustrated by like my friend from MIT. She's obviously very bright. If you haven't heard of school, usually smart people, they go to MIT. And she, uh, she's not a Christian, but she makes this great observation. She says, you know, Paul, I've, been, I've had many Christian friends for many years, and they're really odd to me. And I'll ask her why. She says, well, you see, first, whenever they try to share the gospel with me, you know, if you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. My response is, don't try to proselytize me. Don't try to share your beliefs with me. And then my friends are like, okay. And then they stop. And she says, that's so weird to me. Because she's saying, if you're a Christian, you believe that the world is not the way it should be, but God has sent his son Jesus, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life, but whoever doesn't will be eternally condemned. She says, who cares if I say, don't proselytize me? Proselytize me. Please proselytize me. She says, Christians... Why don't they, why do they give up so easily if, in fact, they believe this truth? And I said, would you like to believe in Jesus? And she goes, no, not now, but, you know, like, but I'm saying the point is, why do Christians give up so easily? And then she brings up this other point that I thought was so insightful. And I hope it illustrates what Paul is saying here. She said, you know, my Christian friends are not engaged in egregious behavior. It's not like they're robbing banks or breaking the law. But she said, the thing about my Christian friends is that they're so... Not, not different. And I said, what do you mean by this? And she's, again, very bright. And so she, she's able to articulate the gospel better than many of us. She says, you see, Christians believe God created the world, and it was good. Adam sinned, so the world is not the way it should be. But Jesus, son of God, fully God, fully man, doesn't make sense, but has come, and he's, uh, he died for our sins, and someday he will come again to renew the world. She was saying, my goodness, if I believe this, my life would be so different. She was saying, it's analogous to believing that like this particular stock, like I have foreknowledge that this stock is going to skyrocket. I would put all my pennies in it because why? I have knowledge of this. And she's saying, when I look at Christians, what really just confounds me is the way that they're not intentional about the way that they live. They know the grand narrative. They know that Jesus has come and he will someday come again to judge the world, but they live like that's not the grand narrative. That's why Paul says here, those who have come to believe in Jesus Christ may be careful or may be purposeful about the way that um, they live. Now, let me just throw out the application question. Have you ever considered this? Again, we're in this series of asking these tough questions. But do you ever think that the reason why this is so tough is just because of the way we live or because of the way we don't live? Can you ever, have you ever considered if we as professing Christians if we were more purposeful in the way that we live, right, do you think that we would have a greater audience among skeptics? It's just something worthwhile to consider. And so again, the first point is this. When skeptics, when seekers say, you know, Christians, they don't live commendably. They don't live purposefully. Their lives are not admirable. Our response should be, you know what? You're right. You're right. And that is our calling, but we're failing in that sense. I think that is a good way to begin the conversation. Number two, what is a very mistaken assumption? Again, let's consider uh, the contention. Basically, seekers will say, well, why are Christians so bad? Why are they not admirable? And this is what the gospel says. Look with me at verse 3. You've got to love the Apostle Paul. So blunt, so direct, so clear. Verse 3, he says, We ourselves, we were once foolish, disobedient, 
led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What is Paul saying? He's saying God seems to have a track record for not recruiting people who are cream of the crop. Have you noticed this? You notice he doesn't say we were once wise, we were once charming, we were once attractive, we were commendable. He says we had nothing to offer us. We were like the worst of the worst. God saved us. Or better yet, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't don't you love him? He says not many of you were wise, not many of you were attractive, not, not many of you were, you had nothing good to offer. And he's echoing what God says to the Israelites in the Old Testament. You were not a royal priesthood. There was nothing special about you, but I chose you. Or if you need something more concrete, think about Jesus. You know, those of you who are in HR, Jesus might have benefited from some HR consulting, like his 12 disciples. My goodness, like, you would not say they're cream of the crop, right? Like, um, and one of my favorite disciples, Peter, the guy, and you, you know people like this, who always talks before he thinks, you know, and they're, all the disciples are on the lake, and there's a storm. Who in their right mind says, Lord, if that's you, command me to come out? I would have said, Lord, if that's you, just come on over so I can touch you. You know, like, who says that? And then Peter, the Lord says, come out. And Peter's like, don't, you know, why why do I do that again? So the, the point that's being made here is when you look at God's track record, he doesn't seem particularly interested in drawing people to him who are all put together. Didn't Jesus say it the best when he says, I have come not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. I have not come for those who are healthy, who have no need for a doctor. I've come for those who are broken, who are sick. And why do we underscore this point? C.S. Lewis explains it very well. This is what C.S. Lewis he says. He says, imagine you have two people, two men. The first man is born in a very healthy household. Loving parents, loving siblings, uh, lives in a nice house, nice neighborhood, gets to do all the extracurricular you can imagine, goes to a good elementary school, middle school, high school, goes to college, has a graduate degree, never becomes a Christian, And, you know, but he's probably very functional, very well-adjusted. He says, that's person A. Then C.S. Lewis says, let's imagine person B for a moment. This person came from a broken household, never met his father, never met his father. Mom was always working. He he was abused in different ways, uh, didn't get to do anything under the sun, and he's filled with anger, filled with rage. Now, this second person grows up. At the age of 21, he becomes a Christian. And C.S. Lewis, he asks this great question. When you compare both persons day-to-day basis, who is going to look more moral? Who's going to have a better control over his temper? Who's going to appear just more like an exemplar? He's just obviously person one, because the Christian is not going to look very attractive. Why? Because God seems to be pretty okay with attracting people who are broken, who are very, you know, in need of help, who are more prone to uh, temptations and so forth. And so the mistaken assumption when seekers and skeptics say, well, Why are Christians so bad? You can say, God seems to love people who are very broken. And the gospel is not for people who are all put together. The gospel is really for people who need help. And this is why the church is often compared to what? A hospital. We're very broken. Now, before we move on to our last point, let me just suggest this to you. It's one thing for you to say this, but it's another thing for you to really believe it and therefore to be able to build bridges with non-Christians. You see, a lot of times when non-Christians, skeptics, and seekers say this, they're saying this because they detect from professing Christians that you think you are better spiritually, you think you are better morally. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that the more you grow in the gospel, the more 
acquainted, you become with your sinfulness, and simultaneously, therefore, you become that much more of a compassionate person. Billy Graham is um, famous for saying that the older he gets, he spends more time confessing his sins. Is it because just he's sinning more, or because the older he gets, he's coming to perceive and understand his sins that much more? No, if I can sort of give you just one anecdote from my family. Um, I, so my five-year-old son, he has crossed that threshold where, you know, times are tough with him. <laughs> and uh, there's this one morning we're getting ready to go to church. And, you know, we're all ready. He's all dressed up. And the day before, it just had poured. So there are all these puddles everywhere. And I look at Christian and I say, don't, don't jump in the puddle. Okay, we've got to go to church. Thinking nothing of it. Not even a second passes and I hear all this splattering and laughing. Because not only has he jumped in, my second son thinks it's hilarious. He has jumped in. The only one that doesn't think it's funny is I. And so I'm like infuriated. Don't you notice kids, their timing to do bad things is impeccable. And so anyway, um, I look at my son and I say to him, what is wrong with you? I, I am raising my voice. Hence my neighbors are asking, why do Christians do bad things? So anyway, so... Um, so I'm like, what is wrong with you? Did you not understand what I just... Did I just say, don't jump in the puddle? And his response, I mean, that's why you have to love kids. His response is, well, you know, Dad, sometimes I just want to do what I want to do. And uh, <laughs> when he said that, there's something about that statement that just... I said, I get that. You're still in trouble, but... <laughs> I, I, I get that. I get that. And you see, for, for those of you, you claim to be a Christian. We just sang this great hymn. I, I love one of these hymns. The chorus says, prone, prone to wander, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The more you grow as a Christian, don't you, doesn't that resound in you? That you begin to see, my goodness, I am depraved. I am sinful to the core. If it were not for the grace of God, I would not be here today. I would not be who I am. And see, the more you understand that, the irony is that you're able to engage non-Christian seekers and you're not weirded out, and they sense you're not weirded out. They sense that you're like, I get it, I get it. And if you think I'm exaggerating here, even the great Puritan, Jonathan Edwards, he has this resolution. He was a holy man, but he says, whenever I see sin in others... It provides an occasion for me to repent of my own sins. Do you, have you reached that point in your spiritual, I guess, growth or journey where you believe what Paul says? We, we are once foolish. We're disobedient. We're led astray. And we're not perfectly uh, sanctified yet. And so when you engage non-Christians, right, is there a part of you that says, hey, you know what? I know you think that Christians are supposed to be really good people, but our starting point is pretty low. And we need much grace. I will tell you, that begins to build a bridge with skeptics because they begin to feel like, oh, wow, you don't think you're better than me. You're not, more, you're not spiritually superior. You get me. And so that's number two. But finally, um, how does the gospel address the concern under the concern? Now, in theological circles, this is called like presuppositional apologetics. Sounds super fancy, great cocktail phrase, but let me just explain to you what it means. It's, it's really basic. Um, this coming weekend is my six-year anniversary, and I had opportunities to reflect on my relationship with my wife. During our first year, th- this was our constant dynamic. So my background is to parse words and to understand meaning. 
And so whenever my wife would say something, that's just the way my brain functions. I would consider her terms, consider the syntax, and understand what she would say. And she would say, that's not what I'm saying. And I, and I would respond foolishly by saying, well, you know, if you got a standard grammar dictionary and Merriam-Webster, I think the majority of the world would agree that my interpretation is correct. And she would say, are you not listening to the concern I really have? And what she was saying is, are you not listening to the concern behind the concern? What is really under? And I want to suggest this to you. One of the uniqueness, unique approaches about, you might say, the Reformed tradition or the Presbyterian tradition is this. We try to hear the concern under the concern. And I want you to listen to it very carefully. When people say, Christians, you're not reliable. You say one thing, but you do another. You're not trustworthy. You're not commendable. I don't feel like you say you love me, but you don't. You say you're going to do this, but you don't. Do you know what people are really saying when you dig? I want something... I want someone I can really believe in, trust in. There's an interesting statistic that was done, a statistical study done of teenagers in the late 80s and early 90s apparently. They were asked this question, what is the one thing you want more than anything else? And you would think maybe superficial answers like this particular device or something. But the the dominant answer was, give us something that we can actually trust in. Give us something we can actually believe in. And when you begin to hear that concern behind this surface contention, that's where the gospel can uniquely address that concern of, is there something, is there someone we can believe in wholeheartedly? And Paul's response and the gospel's response is this. In the Bible, we have this tremendous tension. On the one hand, we have a God who wants to love his people, he wants to bless his people, he wants them to prosper and so forth. And so he is infinitely committed to that. He's the faithful husband. On the other hand, in the Bible, you also have a God who is deeply committed to justice. He's not indifferent to the fact that when he makes stipulations, people don't keep the rules. He's a God who is deeply committed to doing the right thing. And so the question in the Bible is, how can God remain both loving and just at the same time? How can God be proven to be someone that we can trust in terms of his love and his justice? That he will do the right thing, but that he will also love us. Gospel's answer, and Paul states it here, is that God, he sends his son Jesus, who comes and lives among us. He dies in our place. He takes our sins upon himself. He suffers the full wrath of God in order to satisfy God's justice, but also so that in turn, we could be loved and cherished by God. So the gospel basically is saying, you might be cynical. You might be thinking, well, there's no one There's nothing I can really trust that I can give my life over to, I can give my heart over to. And the gospel's response is this. Yes, as Christians, we're going to fail. People will fail you. Societies will fail you. Companies will fail you. Churches will fail you. But there is a covenant-keeping God in the Bible who is revealed in the gospel, who says, I am so committed to justice that I will give my son to die in order for the justice of God to be satisfied. But also, I am so committed to loving you, even if it costs me my son. And friends, I will tell you this. When people are saying, my goodness, Christians are so unreliable. They say one thing, but they live in another way. Christians are so unreliable. Our response should be, you're pretty right about that. We're trying, but you know what? We have a God who is faithful, even when we are faithless. Let me tell you about the gospel. That's how the gospel uniquely addresses the concern under the concern. If I may end by just presenting to you this challenge. But all of this, 
in one sense, and I said this in the beginning, it doesn't connect with people until they feel it and they touch it. This is why Jesus' ministry in the Bible is described as a ministry of word and deed. And I want to just challenge you in this sort of way. Have you ever considered this? As much as we must speak the truth, defend the truth, proclaim the truth, have you ever considered that if we became covenant-keeping people, something as simple as this, if you kept your promises, if you were faithful, if you were sacrificial, do you ever think that maybe the original question, the original problem might change? I've actually met my non-Christian friends who've had great Christian friends, and this is how... They, this is their problem. This is what they say. And, you know, let me end by just throwing it out to you. They say, I don't believe what Christians believe. I don't believe their doctrines and their practices. But they say, but my biggest problem is, my goodness, the Christians I know, their lives are full of justice, full of love, full of compassion. I don't know what to make of it. See, that's how the gospel calls us to transform and redeem this question. Live such good lives so that those around you, even if they don't agree with you, even if they think the things that we think are silly, that they will be confounded because we too are covenant keepers. I want to challenge you. Like, have you? And the reason why I'm emphasizing this is we focus so much on the arguments, on the knowledge. Well, what would happen if we became a people? Our lives were so commendable, so covenant keeping, so praiseworthy that skeptics would say, my goodness, I don't believe what you do. But my biggest problem is your life is commendable. It seems to point me to someone beyond even just the two of us. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we, um, we want to just thank you that our salvation is not based on works, but it's based on the perfect work of Jesus. And yet we know that if you have saved us, we are called to bear much fruit so that our lives would just abound with good works. And so I pray that you would help us to be thoughtful. When we hear this contention that Christians, their lives are not commendable, their lives are not filled with good works, I pray that that would make us sober. Would that cause us to at least ask, hmm, that seems to be an issue because even though we're not saved by good works, we're called, we're saved unto good works. So help us to be thoughtful. God, also help us to be humble and wisely transparent about our sins. And so by doing so, would we be able to remove the wrong assumption that Christianity is for good people, Christianity is for people who are all put together. Help us really begin to see that the gospel is for those who are broken, for those who don't have it all together. And I pray that by being humble and wisely transparent about our sins, we would be able to build good bridges. But God, finally, we thank you, we praise you, because the gospel is the answer to the concern under the concern. Everyone, even in this room, wants something to believe in, someone who is trustworthy, someone who will keep his word even if it comes at great cost. We thank you that that concern points us to the gospel, but how you, being committed to both your love and your justice, you would give your son to die in our place, and you would give your spirit so that we too would become covenant keepers. Help us to aspire to live such good lives so that even this question would be redeemed. That the problem would be, my goodness, I I don't believe what they believe, but their lives seem to point to someone who is much greater. Amen.